Wow. Thank you, ladies. That was excellent. Christ is risen. Happy Easter. Good to see everybody out there smiling faces. It's nice to just have this crowd. You know, just with all the musical talent in the building, I, it just reminds me of when Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, riding on the donkey. They were screaming out, Hosanna. They couldn't contain themselves. The Pharisee says, hey, tell your disciples to, to shut up, basically. Knock it off. And he said, you know what? If I tell them that, even the rocks are going to cry out. And you know, I believe that rock cried out 2,000 years ago, moving away and moving out of the way. I loved uh, some of the lyrics. Uh, well, I loved a lot of the lyrics we sang this morning. But one of the lyrics I loved was in Melissa's song where it said, the, did the earth pound? Pound. Can you picture that? I mean, that's, that's cool stuff. You know, this is what separates Christianity from any other religion in the world. You know, many people will say there's many different ways to God. All religions teach the same thing, et cetera, et cetera. But nobody has a risen Savior except Christianity. Nobody has a risen Savior that can talk about life after death unless the one who died actually lived after death. And that's what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's exciting this morning to talk about the resurrection. In fact, it's exciting to be in a church where you don't get tired about me talking about the resurrection, even when it's not Easter Sunday, which is, which is great. It's exciting um, to just rejoice in what Jesus Christ has accomplished for on, our, on our behalf, for us, something that we could not do for ourselves. Now, my next statement could get me fired in some churches, but I, but I know that this church is gracious and will allow me a, a minute or two to develop this comment, and I do want to tell you why there's one thing I do dislike about Easter, if you'll permit me a minute um, to describe that, and it's, and it's really found in Galatians 4, 9 through 11. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to bring it up on the screen for you, and this is what Paul says here to the Galatians. He says, but now, after you've known God or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. And one of the things that we find over and over and again in our culture is if we set apart or overvalue certain days, then you devalue every other day. Or you, you, you set it up to a crescendo pitch and then it's like wah, wah, wah. It just kind of, you know, the rest of the year. And see, the resurrection is so important that if we just lift it up and get crescendoed up and hyped up and jacked up for one day a year, we're missing out on the benefit of every other day of the year. You know, there's, there's like 364 and a half other days. Isn't there a half like once in a while? I don't know if it's... Every four years? Okay. So, so we're missing out on this benefit 364 days a year because we have this tendency to overvalue or to, to jack it up, hype it up. And we all, we all have this tendency to do those kind of things. And so I want to just challenge our thinking this morning. One of the ways I want to challenge it is why should you value the resurrection more than just Easter Sunday? Why should it be something that you wake up with in the morning, maybe puts a little spring in your step as you get out of bed. Wow, man, Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Why should it be? Well, I want to give you six reasons why we should value the resurrection of Jesus Christ, not just on Easter. And to do that, um, 
I wish I could give you six reasons from 1 Corinthians 15 because then it would make it really easy. We just stay in one passage. But I, there was like an awesome sixth reason that I found in another passage. So 1 Corinthians 15 for now. All right, we'll do the first five there. And here's what we've got to understand about the culture to whom Paul was writing in Corinth. Greeks in general, polytheistic, polytheistic religion of Paul's day, the, the Roman culture, the Greek culture that had really established the Roman culture, if you will, had a hard time believing in the resurrection of the body. That was just an overarching confusion, hard thing to grasp. In fact, you look at tombstones of the days and, and people would, would write stuff on there. Well, kind of like, well, I guess it's over now. You know, we might put it in our parlance. Well, I guess the fat lady's song, I mean, it's, it's, it's done. You know, nothing happens after death. Once you die, you're in the ground, you're in the hole, that's it. And that was kind of the mindset of, of the Greek culture of that day. You kind of pick that up in Acts 17, 32. I'll just read it to you. Paul's preaching in Athens, just up the road from Corinth. And he says, and when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we'll hear you again on this matter. In other words, I'm not ready to make a decision on this. This is, this is too out there. This is too wild. I've never been taught this before. It's kind of new. Um, uh, maybe I'll listen to you again. So you see this general concept of, of just a concern about the resurrection of the body. And their mindset was, well, why would you want the body in the afterlife? It's such a hindrance. And anybody that's, that's getting older in this room, like everybody, <laughs> we can relate to that comment, right? I mean, it's sometimes you wake up, your body's just groaning and aching and you're like, man, I don't want this, this dumb thing after I die. I'm going to be glad to, to shed this thing. And so you can understand from a human perspective why they'd be like, who wants the body to resurrect? This is, this is ridiculous. But you know, one of the things that the Corinthian believers had an issue with coming out of that culture, and the reason this whole chapter is written, they did not have a problem with the fact that Christ resurrected. They were still struggling with the fact, why would we resurrect? Why would we get a body? That doesn't, they were still, they were still struggling with that. And one of the things that we're going to find as it relates to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ is connected to the believer like a domino. Because he raised from the dead, you will raise from the dead. That's why it's connected. We're going to sing a song later. Because he lives, right? Because he lives. Because he lives, I live. And you can say that that is true about any one of your relatives who have died in Christ. Because Jesus Christ lives, they live today. And that is, that is encouraging. That is great comfort to know that if you also are a believer in Jesus Christ, you will see them one day, guaranteed. And if there are gates to heaven, I don't know. If there are gates, I mean, there's gates in the new Jerusalem, right? But if there are gates to heaven, when you get there, I would imagine they're going to be just inside the gates, ready to welcome you in. And see, so we can have that confidence, not because you're a great person, I'm a great person, because Jesus Christ rose again from the dead and you're connected to him like a domino. When he rose, your resurrection was guaranteed as a believer. And so this is what's important as we dive into 1 Corinthians um, chapter 15. And so the first reason I want to look at, it, reason number one why the resurrection is important every day, not just on Easter, is because it's a historically verifiable fact. This isn't something that it, it was just made up in, in religious history or that some guys just wrote down in a book called the Bible and said, uh, well, here it is, historical verifiable fact. Now, really quickly, if there's a skeptical, if there's a skeptic in the crowd, forgive me for just a second because I am going to use the Bible 
to prove that it's a historically recorded fact. And then we'll give some other arguments as well. But turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15 if you're not already there. Let's look at verses 3 through 8 and we'll read those together. He says this, For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And then I want you to notice, starting in verse 5, this repeated phrase, and that he was seen, that he was seen, that he was seen. We'll just kind of read through it, but I want you to draw your attention to that. Verse 5, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as one uh, born out of due time. And so when we look at the historical record of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what we're going to find is if we count through the witnesses labeled here, the witnesses labeled in the gospels, we have at least 516 eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. Now that's a lot. That doesn't convince a lot of religious skeptics though. Uh, what's really interesting about that comment is even this, you know, as, as they've dealt with and talked with experts, because some people will say, well, they all hallucinated, right? That's, that's kind of one of the arguments. It's like, well, yeah, they might have seen them, but, you know, maybe the chili wasn't good that night, and they just kind of woke up and had a little hallucination, and they saw it. But one of the things that's really interesting when you study that, that whole area of hallucinations is that typically individuals can hallucinate but not 500 people at the same time with the same hallucination, right? And, and, and not to be crass, but even if you put a, a, a 500 drug users in the same room who hallucinate when they're on drugs, they're not typically going to see the same thing, right? That's just kind of a rule, scientific rule of hallucination. In fact, <clears throat> one scholar who studies that for a living said, if 500 people, if, if, if in this verse, 500 people all hallucinated the resurrection of Christ at the same time, that would be a greater miracle than the resurrection itself, is what she came to a conclusion. Okay, so now though, I want to move to some, some outside of, of, of biblical narrative to give the skeptics something to kind of sink their teeth into and to think about this morning as to the historical reliability of the resurrection. And that is this, I want to look at three historians, and I just want to look at their objective analysis, and I didn't pick just some guys that would agree with this. These were pretty esteemed guys. In fact, the first guy I'm going to bring up is a quote by a gentleman named Thomas Arnold, who wrote a a famous three-volume history of Rome, and at one point in his career, he was appointed the chair of modern history at Oxford University, and this is back in 1841. And so he was well acquainted because he was a history professor and a history major, and, and this esteemed chair of modern history at Oxford, to look at historical documents and deem what was valuable, what was worth, a worthy history to record, and what was worth just putting out as just fanciful information. Here's what Dr. Arnold had to say. I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which has provided better and fuller evidence of every sort to the understanding of a fair inquirer than the great sign which God has given us that Christ died and rose again from the dead. Okay, Pretty substantial comment. I Not, yeah, this is, you know... Okay, we got to give the Christians, you know, that's a little bit. You can kind of give it, eh, it might be true. No, I mean, he comes out and just says it. I don't know of any other fact in history that's attested to like this event. Now, whether or not he believed it, I don't know. But historically, 
The recording of the historical eyewitnesses, the documents that they have, says this was, a, this was an attested to fact in history. It's something that needs to be considered. If you believe that Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue, what he's saying is you've got more historical, verifiable information on the resurrection than you do that. And yet we don't question that, right? 1492, so, yeah, I mean, we, we, don't, we don't question a lot of our history, right? Someone said it, it's, you know, it's on the internet, you can Google it, it must be true, right? But in this case, this is what he says back in 1841. Second guy I want to look at, and you might write him off because he was a bishop, and he was the Regis Professorship of Divinity at Cambridge. Wow, that would be really cool on your business card, right? That's like longer than a business card, this title. So, um, but this was back at also in the 1800s. And this was a, a gentleman by the name of Brooke Foss Westcott. And this is what he had to say. Taking all the evidence together, it is not too much to say that there is no historic incident better or more variously supported than the resurrection of Christ. Nothing but the antecedent or the preconceived assumption that it must be false could have suggested the idea of deficiency in the proof of it. So again, just a very strong comment. Now, the third quote I want to bring up, this is like, you know, this is like dropping the ace card on people, okay? I mean, this is, this guy's a heavyweight and historical reliability. In fact, some of you may have heard his name. Uh, His name is Dr. Simon Greenleaf. And if you haven't heard of him, you'll be impressed by his credentials, uh, needless to say. He was considered one of the greatest legal minds we've ever had in our country. In fact, um, he was the famous, and, and check out this title, the Royale, not L-E, but like L-L. I've never even seen that word in my life. Royale, professor of law at Harvard University. And that wasn't even the highest level because then he succeeded just of Joseph's story as the Dane professor of law in the same university. So this is, a, this is a, a high-ranking level official in Harvard University. He worked his way up to the top spot in Harvard University. And as someone was writing about his life in the Dictionary of an American Biography, he said this of him. To the efforts of, of Story, which is the guy he, he, he followed, and Greenleaf, which is the one we're looking at, is ascribed the rise of Harvard Law School to its eminent position among the legal schools of the United States. So this is no slouch. This is an intellectual giant as it relates uh, to historical documents. In fact, the article or the, the entry on him in that biography went on to say the U.S. judicial system still relies on rules of evidence established by Greenleaf today. This is how important this man was and how, how valuable he was, even just to the country. But in terms of evaluating historical evidence, this is what Dr. Greenleaf had to say about the resurrection. It was impossible that the apostles could have persisted in affirming the truths they had narrated had not Jesus actually risen from the dead. And had they not known this fact as certainly as they knew any other fact, Greenleaf concluded that the resurrection of Christ was one of the best supported events in history according to the laws of legal evidence administered in courts of justice. In other words, this would even pass in a criminal case, the evidence that we have for the resurrection. And I say that just to say this, that don't feel bad about crying out like the rocks would cry out about the resurrection. This happened. This is, this is what our faith is based on. And if, and if you don't believe in the resurrection, 
go, I, I mean, all joking aside, go spend your Sunday in a better way, like you're wasting your time here. And we're going we're gonna to find that out in the passage today. Because if this is not true, we are wasting our time. And the people who are laughing at us and pointing their finger at us, they're right. We're, we're a sad lot. <laughs> if this didn't happen, we, we got some problems, right? And so it's just nice to know that even outside of what we would consider um, biased religious uh, minds, that even objective historians say, this is the real deal. This really happened. Now, whether or not you want to believe it or not, that is your decision. God always allows you to choose. You have a volitional choice to believe it or not. But in terms of historical reliability, it's verifiable. I want to point out one other thing, and this is taken from a book by Lee Strobel, but, you know, if going back to those 500 witnesses, if you were to call each one of the witnesses of the resurrection to a court of law to be cross-examined for 15 minutes, each witness 15 minutes each, do you know that if you went around the clock without a break, it would take you from breakfast on Sunday until dinner on Friday to hear them all? you imagine that? Imagine if you had an airtight case, in fact, let me pull this up, of 129 straight hours of eyewitness testimony. You know, after about 10, wouldn't you be like, oh, okay, enough, I got it. I, we, you know, if you're on the other side, I give up, right? 15 hours, I, I give up. Okay, now you're cutting into my dinner time. I, I really give up, right, because I need to eat, right? 129 straight hours, if we took all of those witnesses, put them on the stand. And who could possibly walk away after that unconvinced? And that's really the point of this first point. This is something to get excited about because it actually happened. We're, we're not just believing in fairy tales. We're not just pitching Santa Claus up here. We're not pitching the Easter bunny up here. We're not pitching some la-la land. This is like the real deal. This is life-changing. This is eternity-altering. This is, this is the, big, the big deal. I mean, I don't know what else to say. It's like the thing. That should get us up in the morning. And so reason number one, it's a historically verifiable event. Reason number two, that uh, the day of Easter should be, or the resurrection itself should be important every day, is because you know that without it, your faith would be empty. That's what Paul says. In fact, turn with me to verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 15. He says, and if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty. And your faith is also empty. You know, and this, this word empty just means empty or hollow. You know, this is, um, you can kind of picture that with this log. There's nothing there, you know. And what would be really scary is if that log was your only chance to cross a deep ravine. And you could just see how that thing might collapse under our weight. And, you know, the idea is that the, your faith would be empty. And, and not only that, sometimes you think, you know, preaching is boring. But, but imagine if, they, if preachers didn't have the resurrection. I mean, we'd really have nothing to talk about. I mean, seriously, right? This is, this is a message that's not empty, that's full, that's supported, that's secure because it's not empty. There's something to it. There's, there's life after death. There's eternal life. Promise as a free gift as a result of this. But without the resurrection, there's nothing to base your faith on, nothing that's reliable. And consider this. You realize that the death of Christ itself would not have been enough? We'll talk about that in more detail. I mean, how horrendous. I mean, when we study what Jesus Christ went through for us on the cross, the suffering, the the agony, 
the, the pain, the, the amount of torture that he faced, separation from his heavenly father, bearing the penalty of our sin. You realize that itself was, would not be enough? Doesn't that blow you away? I mean, you think, of course that's, that would be enough. Look at how much he suffered. Look at what he did for me. That has to be enough. But this is saying without the resurrection, that would not have been enough. Boy, that just almost brings uh, tears to my eyes to think about that. But remember this, the value of your faith always relies on the value of your object. Your faith is only as good as the object upon which you rely. Anybody ever flown in an airplane? Raise your hand. Did anyone make it out alive? Okay, yes, you're here this morning. So you made it out alive. You know, when you got on that airplane, whether you realized it or not, you exhibited faith in that pilot. You exhibited faith in that pilot. And you know, because you're here today, I'm assuming the pilot knew how to land, knew how to get his landing gear down at just the right time, knew how to take off, knew how to avoid other planes in the sky, knew how to communicate with traffic control. But what if he didn't? Would your faith still save you? No. Your, your salvation, from an airplane perspective, getting from point A to point B, was solely dependent on that pilot. See, it didn't matter how much faith you had. In fact, I've sat next to people who slept through an entire flight. They weren't worried at all about crashing. And I sat next to people that they were making me nervous. You know, I mean, they were, I mean, they had zero faith that we were going to get there. But you know what? Each one of those people I was sitting by, their faith had no impact on that flight. The pilot, the aircraft itself, all of the people working on the ground, that's who our faith rested in. So whether you had a little faith or a lot of faith, it just depended on the one you were trusting in. And see, here's the problem. If there's no resurrection, it, the object that you're trusting in is not good. It, you've, you've got nothing to rest on. But if you've got a Savior who died, was buried, and rose again, you've got something to rest on. You've got something that's secure. You've got something you can, you can trust in and rely upon and just realize that that is enough. Verse 17, he also kind of comments in a similar vein. He says that your faith, if Christ has not risen, your faith is futile. And the idea of being futile is it's empty, it's fruitless, it's aimless, it's chasing the wind, you know, any other uh, <laughs> phrase you can think of. But it's like a dog chasing its tail. Uh, that's kind of it. It's just futile. futile. It's just, you're pursuing your own shadow. You're jumping around. And you know, <clears throat> here's one of the questions I have for us to consider this morning. You know, if, if Christ was not raised from the dead, let's just pose this question. If Christ was not raised from the dead and we ran around and preached the death of Christ, but he was still buried, how, how would you and I know that God accepted Jesus' sacrifice for you? Would we, I mean, would we know? I mean, We'd be in the dark just like every other religion in the world that has a buried leader who's never raised from the dead. And now the arguments would be legit. Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if I should believe Jesus, Muhammad, Joseph. I mean, they're all the same. They're all the same. So how do I know that God wants me to be persuaded and convinced that what Jesus did was enough? And that's where the resurrection enters in. And so reason number three we're going to see that without the resurrection, our sins could not be forgiven. In fact, look at verse 17. We just jumped out of there and read the first part here a second ago. But if Christ has not risen, your faith is futile. And then notice that next phrase, you are still in your sins. 
You are still in your sins. It's a present tense verb. You're presently, continually, you remain in your sins. That means, and here's the deal. If you've never put your faith in Christ before, you can understand this statement right here. Because you, you wake up, maybe not on a daily basis, but it comes up often, and you worry if your sins are forgiven. You, you worry if you've, if you've done enough. You worry if God can accept you. You're, you're not sure. You couldn't answer the question with confidence. Are you 100% sure that you're going to heaven? You might say, oh, I hope so. You know, I, I worked at the soup kitchen yesterday, so I think I'm a little closer to date. Like if he came today, I think maybe I could do it. But man, Friday night, man, I hope, you know, I hope he wasn't around then, right? I hope I wasn't going home then because I might not have made it. And, and, and this is the conundrum if there's no resurrection. All of us would be in this boat. And you know what that tells me is this, the forgiveness of sins, and this is very important. The forgiveness of sins is based on the finished work of Jesus Christ, nothing else. And this is why so many of the gospel cliches that we hear thrown all around in Christendom, on the radio, on TV, don't deal with this. In fact, do you know, and it may shock you if you've never heard this before, do you know that the Bible never tells you to ask for forgiveness for your sins to be saved? You know why it doesn't tell you to do that? Because God can't provide forgiveness this way. He, and, and you're going to say, whoa, that is, if you've never heard that before, that might blow your mind. That might absolutely blow your mind because to me, this is the most popular cliche shared today. In fact, I've sat down with a number of people at at different tables and at different times in my life and asked them, what does God require of you to go to heaven? And they'll say, we just got to ask for forgiveness. And I'll say, well, and how sure are you going to heaven? They say, 100% sure. I said, well, what happens if you sin tomorrow and you die before you can ask for forgiveness? They said, well, I'll probably go to hell. So how can you be 100% sure then? You, you don't have 100% surety. In fact, let me tell you where that theology is very similar. It's very similar to Catholic theology that says you need last rites pronounced over you to be saved, right? So we're not talking about just, hey, let, man, let me slide into home base just in time to get it all cleared out. We're saying that God has provided forgiveness that you can know you have today, that you can possess eternal life today, that you can know the moment you step out of this room or the moment you hear this truth that your sins can be forgiven past, present, and future today at this moment. That's why the resurrection is so important. That's why the finished work of Jesus Christ, if it's finished, it, that means there's nothing more to add to it. There's nothing left to do. It's done. And, and I'm just going to take Jesus's word on that. And you know what? I believe that Jesus is, it is finished. I believe that the resurrection was God's way of saying, amen. It's done. It's finished. And so here's why God can't just forgive sins because we ask for it. See, God is just. We know God is loving. You can turn on any, even news channel and hear about how, how loving God. Everyone wants to talk about the love of God. I love the love of God. I love talking about it. But there's also other character attributes that we have to take into consideration, especially in this area of salvation, forgiveness of sins, because God can never violate a character attribute. We have to understand that. So he's never going to violate his love, but he's also never going to violate his justice. He's never going to violate his holiness because he doesn't just act holy on Sunday like some do, right? Some of us do, maybe. Hopefully not. Hopefully that's not the the case. But he doesn't just act holy one day. He is holy. And he doesn't just act just one day. He is just. 
And he doesn't just act loving on Valentine's Day. He's like loving all year long, right? That's who he is by character. Because he's just, he has determined a penalty for sin. Sin is a breaking of his law. Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever stolen anything? Have you ever dishonored your parents? Have you ever blasphemed? He just worked through the Ten Commandments. You don't even have to get all the way through all ten. And you can realize we've broken his law. Here's the deal. Because there's a penalty, because there's a law, because he's just, he has to execute justice. That's what's missing in all of these cliches. That's what's missing in all of them. See, I can just ask for forgiveness. It doesn't mean the penalty's been paid. All right? Because he's just, he cannot allow sin to go unpunished. The penalty for sin is death. The wages of sin is death. What we earn is death, the Bible teaches us. And somebody's got to pay that penalty for justice to be executed. This is the whole point. For God to remain just, a penalty has to be executed. Now imagine taking it to our, just kind of our normal courtroom. Imagine a man has been caught red-handed in some awful crime, whatever you want to consider, rape, murder, whatever it is. He's been caught red-handed. He's got witnesses. He's guilty as sin, as the saying goes. He's guilty. And the penalty for that person is, is the electric chair. Well, that person cannot say, well, judge, please forgive me. I'll live a better life from this point forward. And what if the judge says, oh, man, that sounds like a great idea. Go on out of here and just do that. Go on and live a good life forward. We'd be ticked, man. If that was a judge that got voted in, he would be out the next term. That is a miscarriage of justice. Somebody needed to punish that man. And not only that, but what if the man says, well, God, you know, or or judge on second thought, I I really am not really comfortable with that death penalty thing. But what I am comfortable with is I would like to serve community hours instead of the death penalty thing. The judge is going to say, I don't care what you think. You don't get to determine the penalty. You don't get to determine how you pay the penalty. The penalty, according to the law, is death. That's the penalty you're going to face. Now, one of the, the things about God is he is clearly more just and more fair and more righteous than any human judge that we've ever seen in any legal system. Because he's just by nature, he cannot let guilty people go. But because he's loving, he devised a plan. That's, that's what's great about our God. He's not just just either. He's also loving. He devised a plan. And you know what? Please mark this down if you've, if, if, this, if you've never heard this before or it's meaningful to you this morning. Christ died for you. I, and if I, could, if I had the time to point at everyone in this room, I'd point at you. That means that the death penalty that you incurred, you don't have to pay it. God has devised a way to execute his justice where you don't have to pay it. You don't have to face the death penalty. Because God gave you a substitute to come and die for you. Die in your place so that you would never have to face that death penalty. See, this is why when we talk about forgiveness of sins, it has to include the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's not just, hey God, please forgive me. No God, I'm trusting in your solution to forgive me. Your substitute died in my place. I believe that he did. I believe that he paid for all of my sins. Wait a minute, even the sins I'm going to commit when I'm 80? All means all. Yeah, even the sins I'm going to commit when I'm 80. And if he's paid the penalty, what is left for you to pay? Nothing. That's what the Bible teaches. If he paid it all, 
There's nothing left for you to pay. This is why we rejoice in the work of Jesus Christ. And when we look at the resurrection, and this is why this is so important. This is why it's something we can rejoice in every day. Because God gave you a visual image that you cannot mistake. God gave you a, a visual that is just stamped and indelible in our mind. And we, we remind each other of it at least once a year. Hopefully it's more than that. But you know what? There's no approval of Christ's death penalty payment for you without the resurrection. In fact, that was God's way of saying this. He's got a big stamp up in heaven. And when he raised him from that, he said, I am satisfied. I am satisfied. And God wants to persuade you because he is satisfied. He wants you to trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ for your salvation. Stop trying to be good to get to heaven. You're never going to be good enough. Stop trying to go to church to earn your way to heaven. You'll never go to church enough. You could sleep up here in the sound room and it's not going to get you one inch closer to heaven. You could even sleep in my office. It's not going to, that is not even a, a better upgrade, you know? No, it's the finished work of Jesus Christ. Do you trust in God's solution or will you not? God has stamped his approval on the work of his son. Reason number four. Without the resurrection, there would be no afterlife. Look at verse 18. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have uh, perished. Verse 19, if in this life we, uh, we only have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. You know, this is an interesting word, this word perish, because it means to be destroyed. And it means to be, it's got a preposition on the front. It means to be wholly destroyed, like completely destroyed. Um, and what's really, I think, interesting about this word is it says that if, if Christ hasn't risen, then when you die, you're going to face eternal judgment because his death wasn't an acceptable payment for you. This, the resurrection gives us the key that it was acceptable. But if you're trusting in Christ and he didn't raise from the dead, you're going you're to perish. You're going to be destroyed. You're going to face eternal judgment. In fact, what's really interesting about the word, it's the same word, those of you that know John 3.16 it's the same word used in John 3.16. But there it's used in a much more, more positive light, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish. So now it's telling you that if you believe in Jesus Christ, you won't perish. Now why can we be confident of that? Well, part of the reason is, is God raised him from the dead. God accepted his death in your place. So the, guess what? If the death penalty has been paid, why would you have to pay it? That's the promise. I mean, that's a simple promise. If you believe in Christ, he died in your place, you don't have to face that death penalty. In fact, you'll never face the death penalty. And that's why we believe that the next phrase is so commonly misunderstood, but you should not perish, but you have what? everlasting life. And as I've said a million times, but I'll say it a million and one, how long does eternal life last by definition? Forever. So if you have something that lasts forever, can you ever lose it? Never. So those two promises go together right there at the end. You know, without the resurrection, the only thing we have to look forward to is this life. And that is sad. How many people have you told heard and they're and they're wrong in their theology but I understand the sentiment and they say that hell doesn't exist hell's here on earth and sometimes I'm like well hell does exist but yeah this does feel a little hellacious sometimes life does and it, but imagine if that's all you had oh man that would de- be depressing talk about staying in bed in a fetal position most of the day I mean I I couldn't even get out of bed if this is all I had 
most pitiable. People should feel sorry for us. Reason five, you know, one of the things too we see is that without the resurrection of Christ, we couldn't even enter heaven. And and we're going to jump down in the passage. Jump down with me to verse 50 here. In 1 Corinthians 15, flesh and blood, it says, cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. And see, without the resurrection of Christ, we don't resurrect. Therefore, we don't put on incorrupt bodies. Therefore, we wouldn't qualify for heaven. God doesn't let diseased and decrepit bodies in heaven. And I mean, that ought to generate a hallelujah, right? Because I mean, this, these are the very things that we want to shed at some point. It doesn't allow bodies that have the sin nature attached to it to inherit heaven. Imagine still dealing with temptation and sin when you get to heaven. I don't, I don't want to deal with that. I'm looking forward to the day that I don't do that. Where I can be occupied with Jesus Christ 24 hours a day. Man, that'll be the day. I can't wait. You know, I, can, I cannot wait for that day. So it's very clear that something must change, but this cannot happen without the resurrection of Christ. And Paul goes on in this passage, due to time, we won't read it, although I, I'm remiss. Well, okay, we're going to read a couple. But he goes on to describe when this has happened. Let's just read verses 51 and 52. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. That's going to happen at the rapture of the church. That's going to happen when those who have died in Christ before us, the last 2,000 years, they're going to be raised before us, get their new bodies, and then those who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds, and we'll get our new bodies somehow on the way up. I don't know how that, that'll be like the Jetson suit thing, I guess, like, well, it'll just swallow us up. I don't know. It's going to be awesome, though. And so that's when it's going to happen, and then we'll be fit for heaven. Reason number six. And this is where I'm going to have you turn back to Romans chapter 6. If you'll flip left in your Bibles, if you've got a a page Bible. Maybe some of your Bibles automatically open to the book of Romans by this time in your life. There's some bruises and dents in those pages. Romans 6.3, let's read it. For the believer in Jesus Christ, one one of the great truths that you can celebrate the resurrection of Christ every day so that you can walk in newness of life. You don't, you don't have to be dominated by sin anymore. Romans 6, 3. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. See, one of the purposes that God identified you with Christ is so that you and I as believers could walk in newness of life. Doesn't, isn't that the most frustrating feeling when you have this habitual sin that keeps tripping you up that you don't want to be involved in, but you can't shake it. You, whatever you try to do, it just dominates you. It just sucks you back in and you might have a good week, but then the, the crash and burn is coming again. And not Bernie Sanders, right? The, the, the true crash and burn is coming again. And then next time you might really get it out there to two weeks. Woo, man, I'm feeling pretty good. And then the crash and burn comes again. See, because God has identified you with Jesus Christ, you have the ability to walk in newness of life. We, that should be thrilling news to the believer in Jesus Christ because all sin brings is death. All sin in your life brings is corruption. All sin in your life brings is destruction. 
It destroys relationships. All it does is tear you down, tear you apart, rip families apart, rip churches apart, rip businesses apart, rip societies apart. That's all sin does. We We don't want to live dominated by sin and contribute to that. We want to walk in newness of life. Now, one of the things we have to realize is that you don't walk in newness of life by working hard to try to walk in newness of life. That's, that's not how that happens. In fact, we've studied Romans 6. If it's new, by definition, it means you've never done it before. <laughs> you, this isn't just cleaning up your act and just trying to get better at the act that you had before you got saved. It's, it's actually walking in a new way. It's walking by faith. And we've kind of studied that through the book of Romans Again, this newness of life is, is life lived by faith in the Son of God. It's, it's Galatians 2.20. It's not I, but Christ. See, that's new. You didn't walk that way as an unbeliever. You, none of us did. It was all I and, and not Christ. It, and so it flips on its head in the Christian life. And so this is, again, one of the benefits of the resurrection. One of the things that you hear worldly religious philosophy often say is, you know, just be the best person you can be. Just try to be good. Just trying to be good. And so sometimes that same teaching creeps into the Christian life. And that's, that's not newness of life. That's what we believed before we got saved. So it's not how we live when we're saved. We live in a totally different way, relying upon the Son of God and the resurrection provided that. Let me just spend a couple more minutes to ask you a couple questions. This is picture represents you. Not are you a bellhop at a hotel. I don't mean that. But are you carrying a load? You know, there might be somebody here today that it, it related or resonated with the comments that you are still in your sins. That if you died today, you wouldn't know 100% sure whether or not you're going to heaven. You're, are you still carrying your sin? Are you still carrying that burden? Are you still wondering, maybe even silently yourself, can I get there? Am I going to make it? Am I good enough? How do I do this? One of the things that we have to understand is our problem is twofold. We have a debt we cannot pay. And that's the eternal death that we talked about. And then we need a righteousness of perfection. You know, Jesus told uh, his listeners in Matthew 5 that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you're not going to enter the kingdom. You're not going to spend eternity with me. And they said, whoa, the Pharisees' righteousness? I mean, these guys were like fasting all the time and doing all sorts of jazz. But he's saying, if your righteousness doesn't, so we need a righteousness equal to God's. So we have problems. If we're being honest with ourselves, you know, this isn't the YMCA where everybody gets a medal. This is like legitimate problems. These are, these are problems we can't solve. We need to take this serious. Here's the great news for you and I. God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. Let me, let me say that again. God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. He went through great lengths and great sacrifice to ensure that nobody would have to go to hell. And you know what? The gospel's the answer. You have a death penalty, boom, Jesus Christ died for you. You don't have to face that death penalty anymore. And God rose him again three days later to convince you that his death was enough. You got a righteousness issue, boom. Through the gospel, God enacted a great exchange. He placed your sins on your Savior, and he credited his righteousness to your account. Isn't God awesome? Doesn't God know what he's doing? Doesn't he have this whole thing figured out? And see, religion never wants to point to God to the solution. They want to point to you to get busy. Because typically when you get busy and I manipulate you to do good things, guess who benefits? Builds my kingdom. It builds up my building. It builds up my salary. 
or whatever. Who cares about any of that? Eternal life is free. And it's free because Jesus paid it all. You don't have to pay for it. He paid for it. The gospel takes care of all that. And so when we look at the gospel, it really is your move. Everything was accomplished for your salvation 2,000 years ago. There's nothing left for you to do except to trust in the one who died for you and rose again. And so that's the closing question this morning. Will you put your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ and him alone? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the resurrection. Lord, we could spend the rest of the day rejoicing and praising you for what you accomplished that day 2,000 years ago. And I guess we'll get some catch-up time in eternity to do that because I know that's what we're going to be talking about and singing about and rejoicing in because we'll understand its significance even more than we do today. But please, please not let us, uh, allow us to make this a single day event in our life, but that this is what gets us up in the morning, that gives us the spring in our step, that gives us freedom uh, to move about, uh, so to speak, in our life. Uh, We pray you would work this truth uh, just consistently into our thinking uh, as we go about our daily lives and show us how practical it really is. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.